Red Kite Prayer is hosting its first-ever event October 12th through 14th, 2018, the Red Kite Rendezvous. The two-and-a-half-day event will feature bikes from some of the industry's top frame builders, two gravel rides, some of the world's finest craft beers, which are brewed locally, plus enough food to make the pedaling fun. For more information or to register, go to redkiteprayer.com backslash store. The Pull is brought to you by the North American Handmade Bicycle Show, the world's premier annual gathering of bicycle frame builders and frame building enthusiasts. The 2019 show will take place March 15th to 17th at the Sacramento Convention Center in Sacramento, California. We hope to see you there. From Red Kite Prayer, I'm Patrick Brady with The Pool. On this week's show, my guest is Gary Fisher. Few people can claim to be as inextricably linked with the birth of mountain biking as Gary Fisher. His company, Mountain Bikes, produced what were arguably the very first production mountain bikes before he went on to found Gary Fisher Bikes, which he later sold to Trek. The Trek has stopped producing bikes under the Fisher name. They have retained him as an advocate and expert. A wise move, given the depth of his knowledge. Long before he and others began riding clunkers around Marin County, Fisher was a dedicated roadie, entering his first road race as a 12-year-old junior in 1963. Fisher was fast enough to earn podium finishes at the Redzinger Classic, Tour of Nevada City, as well as the Cyclocross National Championships. He was truly a complete rider. Perhaps more impressive is that Fisher set the record of 4.22.14 at the repack downhill without the aid of suspension or big wheels. His record still stands. While Fisher's current public image is that of a flamboyant bon vivant, that obscures his real identity. He's a man with an immense intellect and a restless curiosity. It's easy to forget just how many mountain bike innovations can be credited to him. From 29-inch wheels to oversized headsets, full suspension to long front centers with short stems, much of what makes mountain biking as enjoyable as it is can be credited to insights he uncovered while out on the trail. In the entirety of my career, I've not met anyone whose day-to-day role was more removed from product management with as complete a grasp of such minutiae as frame geometry and tubing dimensions. He's as much a bike geek now as he ever was. The advantages presented by 29-inch wheels, long front centers with short stems, oversized headsets, and full suspension are established at this point. Rather than rehash the self-obvious why of such innovations, I was interested to discuss with Fisher the nature of innovation itself, the how of getting to that epiphany. With that, I'd like to welcome Gary Fisher to The Pull. Well, Gary Flippin' Fisher, man, I am really excited to have you on The Pull. How are you doing? I'm doing great. I'm fine. I just got back from a bike ride and 
geez, I can still ride a bike. I'm really happy. <laughs> yeah, so. yeah. Well, I mean, for somebody who isn't uh, 41 anymore or 35, like we'd probably no. both like to be, uh, I'd say you're doing pretty well, huh? No, I'm fine. I'm physically, yeah. I'm okay. You know, I mean, it's like I feel lucky, you know, completely lucky, and I take care of myself. So I'm not trying to risk it <laughs> any longer not as much as i used to that's for yeah sure. yeah well and speaking of being spry uh i suppose we should uh congratulate you on your new addition oh that's right i got a three-month-old daughter oh my goodness and i got a three-year-old boy and uh, the house is full right now it's really great <laughs> so it's super exciting you know a ton of energy <clears throat> the little boy blows my mind i mean yeah you know, all that, all that energy, where's it all come from? Oh my gosh, yeah, they are they are such eternal fonts of energy, yeah. huh? Yeah, yeah, definitely. And the little girl, is she sleeping through the night yet? Um, well, yeah, I, I, I just feed her a bottle. She wakes up about twice, and she goes right back to sleep. So she's oh. easy. She's <laughs> one of the easier ones I've had, you know. Wow. And, uh, Very cool. So, and we got help, you know. We got people that help us and everything, so. And my wife does a great, an incredible job with the whole thing. So, she must be pretty determined. Totally determined. She says, "I want to have two kids." I said, "Oh, okay, let's <laughs> do it." And we did it. You know, it's amazing. I'm 67 years old. I got two kids, young kids. People can say, "Hey, granddad," and I say, "No, I'm the dad." You know. So, <laughs> isn't it funny how people will just start to assume? Yeah. Oh, people assume all the time. They've yep. been assuming all my life. I mean, they look at a bike rider. What do they think? You know, come on. Jeez. <laughs> Talk about basic assumptions, you know. Where, <laughs> what planet are you from? You know, what superhero are you? You know, it's like all this stuff. And, yep. Yeah. Uh, okay. Anyway, we're going to really nuts and bolts questions here. Yeah. So. You know, as I've okay. explained to our, our audience, um, you know, this really is a, a, a podcast about craft. And when I think about people yeah. who yeah, yeah. have devoted time to becoming good at something, and I see you as somebody who has devoted a lifetime to really thinking about the mountain bike and what well, that experience I, can be. Please, Patrick, I must give credit to my teachers. You know, mm -hmm. I've worked with a lot of really incredible people, you know, I mean, uh, through my life. And uh, I mean, the Shimano brothers, Columbus, the Italians, uh, they taught <laughs> me a lot, the Japanese, <laughs> mm -hmm. all the, all the different, uh, Nito handlebar, you know, like, like all these different frame builders from, um, Japan and Europe and what they do. And just the knowledge that you gain by, you produce a lot of bikes and mm -hmm. you put them under a lot of people and all kinds of stuff goes on. I mean, the, the the act of riding a bike has not been fully described. We're getting much closer, yep. and we understand it much better than we ever did before, but people keep figuring out new ways to ride these things. Hey, hey, hey. Yeah. And the act hasn't been fully described. I mean, you, and you look at, you know, the way people ride off-road, even on the road. I mean, you know, those guys are doing that, that super tuck and everything. Yeah. It's like you couldn't do that on a bike that we were making 20 years ago because they are too squirrely. You know, today's bikes yep. are super stiff in, um, you know, the torsional and everything. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, when you get that big oversized headset and everything on the bottom and, and that thing is stable and you can do crazy stuff like that. You couldn't do that, you know, before. Sure. It's wild. And then, of course, you know what they do off road. Oh, man. 
it's like out of fantasies and cartoons, you know? Yeah. It's crazy. Yeah. You know? Some of the air <clears throat> but, that guys catch, it looks like they've been shot yeah. out of cannons. Yeah. But they're fundamentals to all this. And that is that, um, you know, we're still humans and um, um, we can only hang on so tight. It's like, that's how it's, it's like. We figured out a long time ago how f- strong we had to make the front end uh-huh. uh, because um, a rider could only hang on so hard. So it was about 850 pounds of frontal impact force, and uh, you wouldn't have so many bent forks, <laughs> you know? And that was like yep. we found out this stuff sort of the hard way. I mean, trial and error, you know, yeah. on a lot of things. And I'd, I'd love to go through your questions. I think you've organized it well here. Okay, yeah. Well, so the first one was, you know, early on, the mountain bike was the technological version of received wisdom. You know, by that, mm-hmm. I mean, it was all received technology from the Excelsior frames to the motorcycle brake levers. You know, regardless right. of your ability to get it made, get a product made, a component made, I'm curious about what the first thing was that you looked at on the early mountain bike and thought, oh, yeah, we got to make something better than this. And what well, was you, it that led you to the conclusion? Yeah. Well, you got to realize, I mean, there was a lot of innovation that started to happen at that time. And it was like a lot of the Japanese are making super wide range uh, gear ratios. Mm-hmm. So that wasn't a problem. <clears throat> you could get uh, a wide enough gear ratio out of the thing. And you know, you could, um, the brakes, well, they were a problem. You know, like the first brakes that we used around here were like drum brakes because all you could get your hands on were steel rims mm-hmm. and steel rims, you know, they just didn't work well for cantilever brake or any type of a, a brake pad, you know, cause it, when they get wet. Right. So it was the BMX guys that in, um, uh, the late 70s that uh, got the alloy rim made and it didn't exist before that and that opened up things then we could like have cantilever brakes and uh, you know use use some current things but the thing I was looking for man was tires mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. there was like the tires the first tires we had were the Uniroyal Nobby 26 by 2125 and then I found out about these tires I could get through England the Haka Pavelta right. from Finland Yep. And that was like uh, 650B and 700C. I ordered both. And I got, uh, you know, 42. They were only 42 millimeter. That was the problem. And they would cut. We had got a lot of rocks here in California, you know. And, I've picked up on that, yeah. Yeah, you know, in places that it was rocky, you know, they'd cut. And the Uniroyal was amazing. I mean, it's a big, heavy piece of rubber. Mm-hmm. But you could run the thing at 20 PSI. And the same with that rim, the old Schwinn S2. Uh-huh. The old Schwinn S2 rim. You look at the edge of the rim, the thing that, you know, the the edge of the rim itself is a very wide piece. And this is what, like, all these old school Dutch rims and everything are. The edges of the rim are like some six millimeters in diameter. And you look at our modern rims, and they're one and a half millimeter of alloy or carbon. Carbon is usually around two millimeter wide. And they've got a sharp edge on them because you're trying to cut it. Sometimes they'll just cut the radius of the rim just so they get a, a tubeless tire on and off, right? Yep. Keep the for the tolerances. So then you create yourself a cutting edge right there, right where you'd want to do the rim pinch. And that was a funny thing. I mean, the old S2 rim and a Uniroyal tire, <clears throat> you could run those things at 20 PSI and they wouldn't rim pinch. They'd like 
hit the rim. You could hit a rock so hard and hit the rim so hard that the rim would deform and the tube would start sticking out. And you'd grab a rock and pound the rim back in shape. It was crazy, wow. you know, but they were mild steel rims. They weren't really high-tech steel, mm-hmm. the old Schwinn rim. And they were 55 ounces each. Oh, my God. And, you know, the regular alloy rim was like 19 ounces. So the bike, when we were using those heavy-duty old uh, rims, had tremendous uh, uh, gyroscopic stability. Mm-hmm. And it also had like, uh, you know, you're running 20 PSI. That was a lot of shock, shock absorption. Mm-hmm. And then the way the bike was stretched out and everything, you know, we'd, you'd sit way back on it, um, way back, and it had a real long chain stay. It, it absorbed shock pretty well, you know, for being a rigid bike. Right. But, you know, then we went to these lightweight alloy rims, and the bike weight went from 42 pounds. I mean, a full-on clunker, my full-on clunker with really good brakes. I mean, you know, like big tandem drums, they're heavy. But, mm-hmm. man, those things were solid. One-finger action. They were amazing. Super strong. Powerful, you know. And they were shielded, okay? So any kind of crap. You know, uh-huh. like unlike a disc brake. And then the pad is huge on a drum brake, you know. And so I remember getting a, a set of these French drum brakes or just the rear one. And the rear one lasted two and a half years of riding wow. before the pad wore out. It was amazing. Anyway, you know, that was an old clunk, 28 pounds. I mean, 42 pounds. And then we got down to like 28 pounds, you know, with a, a modern bike, you know, chromoly tubing. Yep, And it was really funny. Um, lately, there was a magazine article published up in the Pacific Northwest about the clunker, you know, uh, ballooner revolution, you know, the whole mountain bike evolution thing. And they said our original bikes look more like road bikes than mountain bikes. And Charlie Kelly said, what are you talking about? No way. And I've, I think I, I, I disagree with my friend Charlie and just think, Man, what we were building back then, which is sort of a, an oversized uh, road bike in a lot of ways. Yeah. Well, that kind of leads me to my second question. Yeah. You know, the early mountain bike geometry began differing from the accessory geometry pretty quickly. Right. You right. know, But right. in my view, it wasn't in an Excelsior and it wasn't a road bike. It sat in between. Well, I'd, and let me tell you, there's a few things that we learned through this. Mm-hmm. Um, now... My first year, you know, like mountain bikes, like what, uh, 79, 80, we had bikes that had uh, varying uh, uh, head angles and varying seat angles, mm-hmm. uh, varying uh, chainstay lengths, varying offsets on the fork, depending on the size of the frame, because mm-hmm. that's how you made a traditional road frame. Yep. And this was a mistake. And I'll tell you why. Because a road bike has its peculiarities in the front end, especially, you know, like big sizes. Uh-huh. They get longer top tubes, but they get steeper. Right. Why? There's one reason why to sit on that guy in front of you closer. Yep. You know, and a mountain bike, like, and, you know, you're talking about the whole thing about uh, long front end, short stem. Yeah. Well, we're not worried about sitting on somebody so close. We're worried about going ass over tea kettle, you know, not having, you know, just having too short of a front end and nothing mm-hmm. to work with there. 
And mountain bikes are funny. I mean, you know, traditional road bike, the old school thing was 55% of the weight would be on a rear wheel, 60 uh, or, or 65 or 55% on the rear, 45 on the front. Yep. And reality turns out more like even on a modern road bike, it's more like um, um, it's a much greater weight on the rear wheel than the front still. But you get too much weight on the rear, not enough on the front. The bike, oh man, it just like loses traction on the front. Yeah. You, you can't go around corners that fast. So it's this funny thing we do on mountain bikes. We throw our weight up on the front when we go to make a corner that's on a, uh, that's anywhere near flat. And then we move around on the bike a ton. Yes. Or else it wouldn't work at all. You know, it's not like a motorcycle has a much lower center of gravity than a, than a bike and especially a mountain, a mountain bike. Man, we just are moving all over the thing to make the thing work, you know, forward and aft. Mm-hmm. So it's like the modern thing. We're going, uh, you know, slack and low and everything. And that is also just a recognition that downhill is where it's at. <laughs> you know, <laughs> gravity. And yes. you got to realize, I mean, you know, we start, we changed our geometry the first time we changed it because nobody cared, man. They wanted a bike. They wanted a bike that worked. They wanted a bike that was beautiful. They wanted big knobby tires. You know, they wanted something that looked righteous. You know, mm-hmm. and um, they didn't care. They didn't know anything about geometry. The first geometry that we really started doing was like in um, eighty one, eighty two, with our race team, mm-hmm. and that and that was just making the rear end shorter and the seat tube more upright instead of a 70 it would be 73 mm-hmm. uh, seat angle and then the head angles were the same they're still 68 and then along came john tomac and you know and scott nickel scott nickel did like a 71 degree head yep and john tomac was uh 73 and man i thought that was crazy to 73 you know and like people were going for it and john tomac could do it he could ride the thing, you know. He mm-hmm. was amazing. He could just put all his weight up on the front wheel and just pin it, man, on a on a on a bike with a pair of drop bars and the whole thing. He was he was great, but that trend didn't last very long, you know. But it did throw things back to like 70, 71 degrees, and everybody had it. And I know, like in a '87 um, mountain bike action called our. Um, Pro Caliber bike, the best Norba geometry bike, hands down. Then everybody and their brother copied that bike. And I'm like thinking to myself, you know, we didn't really work on that geometry that hard. (laughs) You know? Uh And I had had been, oh, man, I – the stems were ridiculous. They were getting to be, you know, hundred. We had sold a hundred and fifty millimeter long stem, you know, and these <laughs> bars, original bars. I mean, the bars on the old clunkers, twenty seven degree angle. Yeah. The old Bomos bars, twenty seven degree and seventeen degree were the two angles that we did on the bars. Sweep back. My handlebars and my old Excels here that I set the repack record on. Those bars, they came back so far. Your, your hands were actually behind the headset, not in front of the headset, behind mm-hmm. it, yep. you know, and, and that really changes how the bike feels and how you can ride the thing, you know, what you can do with the thing. And those bars had, you know, the center part, they went forward so you could stick your knees in there. You wouldn't hit the bar, 
but you right. could sit way, way back, you know, and put the bike and throw the bike up onto things, sort of like it was funny mm-hmm. how it worked that way. But anyway, you know, Easton came out with these super light handlebars. They were, uh, and they couldn't bend them more than three degrees and not have them like ripple and look terrible. So John Tomac and everybody else, you know, went to three degree bend. <laughs> yep. And, uh, you know, 150 millimeter stem, 120 millimeter stem, you know, those, those were the common lengths back yeah. then. Yeah. So you stretched way out there and everything. And, I went on this 100-mile uh, off-road ride, single-track ride here in Marin, you know, on the longest day of the year. And in the first 20 miles, I, you know, I had a brand-new bike. I had the bars super low and stretched out. And I went over the bars a few times. And the last time, I'm thinking, this is stupid. I'm going home. I'm like, I got to play with the geometry. This is so wrong. And so then we just went on a whole big <laughs> craziness, built everything, and just learned a lot. And what we learned was uh, mountain bikes want this freaky thing. They want a super short chain stay, and they want to have a uh, they want to have you know this long front end, and mm-hmm. they don't want to be that laid back. You know, they right? You still need to be able to pedal. And the big thing with the whole thing was getting the offset correct, because that was uh, something that we got frozen. Um, in 1991, we did a bike, uh, um, the Mount Tam that had a rock shock mm-hmm. and that was the first, believe it or not, 1991, that bike was the first production bike at the, in the regular bike, go into a bike shop and buy unmodified out of a bike shop with a front fork on it. Before that, it was all rigid forks. Right. And I'll tell you, my sales guys they fought me tooth and nail for six months, and they told me I was stupid to put that on. <laughs> and then six months later, huh, that's the best thing we ever did. You know, <laughs> Before that, it was like, this is the stupidest I- idea you ever had. You know, And then they said, this is the best idea we ever did. <laughs> yeah, funny how you shift from the, the single pronoun to the collective. Hey, but these are sales guys. They're supposed to do that. That's the nature of the beast. Sure. You're, you're supposed to expect that stuff out of these guys. They're full of it. Don't yeah. believe their numbers, okay? They'll <laughs> tell you, if you had had that in stock, I could have sold twice as many. And when you get down to it, they could have sold 20% more. Mm. So you got to be very careful with everything. <laughs> you know? Fair enough. Yeah. Fair enough. I mean, just just realize what you're dealing with. Yeah. Anyway, um, it was, uh, you know... That was like later on that we changed to the Genesis geometry and we just opened up the can again and said, we aren't following all this stuff. And um, now it's like, uh, boy, people are playing with everything. Sure. You know, like we did that with the top tube and, um, and the stem being shorter. That was, that cost us nothing. The next step cost us $100,000. And that was uh, what should have been done. You know, I was going back to like the Mount Tam back in 91. And we used to use, when we did rigid bikes, uh, I had a series of forks in-house that had a rear Campagnolo dropout on it, this big, long, horizontal dropout. Yep. And you'd move the wheel uh, fore and aft as you went out. You rode the bike. You put this on the bike. You'd move the wheel back and forth, and you'd find a sweet spot. And I'll tell you, in offset, there's a sweet spot every, like, quarter inch and a sour spot in between. <laughs> it's wow. really funny, you know, and you play around with that. And so the last thing you do, you know, after you decide the tires, the wheels, everything, 
the total geometry. So the last thing you did on the bike, and I'll tell you, in the old days with steel forks and uh, craftsmen, frame builders, they'd have a fork block. Yep. And I made a fork block, you know, and a fork block, you hook the dropouts in it and you put a, a big breaker tube over the uh, the head to, I mean, the steer column. Yep. And you put rake into the fork. And the further you bend, the more rake you have. Okay. Then you want to take the rake out. You put the fork in a vise. You get two big rubber mallets and you bend that little baby back. That and a, you get a tool to bend it back a little bit. You know, you got to be careful or else it shows, you know, what you're doing. But yep. you can play around with that and, you know, the fork and alignment tool and get everything straight and everything. Man, that tunes your bike. That makes the thing ride right. <laughs> yeah. that, that's been going on forever. And so along comes Paul Turner and he's going like, I can't do that. No. You know, and so he gives me a whole bunch of fork crowns and the fork crowns are different offsets. And we decided on um, – what was it 38.1 was the offset for a 71 degree head angle bike of a 26 inch wheel. And that offset got set in stone and everybody and their brother copied it for better or for worse. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, over the years, uh, bikes got into more sane head angles again, you know, like 69 and 70 degrees and the tires are getting bigger. And then came the 29 inch wheel and then that whole offset didn't work very well at all. You know, it was like it was what what happens in general when you shorten the offset. Uh, the wheel doesn't get knocked off, uh, you know, its true course. It wants to stay straight mm-hmm. and it becomes really hard to initiate the turn. It, you get more and more trail involved in it. You know, that is the offset shorter, the. You know, it's more laid back. It comes really hard to initiate the turn. Right. And, of course, the, the, the cross-section of the tire comes into play also and the rim and all that stuff. It all comes into play with that, how it feels. Right. And, but um, and in general, you know, you give it more offset and the thing wants to steer itself more. And you got to find somewhere in the right way. Then you start hitting your, hitting your number, man. You start hitting it. You know, you're hitting your spot every time. This bike feels good, man. I don't have to do contortions and all this weird stuff to make this bike ride right. Because have you ever noticed there's some people, it doesn't matter what bike, they can make it work, right? Yeah. It's yeah. a little work for them, but they make it work. Some really experts. And then there's everybody else. And it's like a sweet bike doesn't take work to ride. It's sweet. It, it rides really well. And so that offset thing is that last, the, the single most effective thing you can change the handling of a bike. The other one is tires. Mm-hmm. You know, so, and then now, I mean, we got all these diameters. It's wonderful. I love it. You know, and, oh, you were saying, um, oh, I keep going through here. You were talking about the biggest problem with the 29er. Mm-hmm. You know what that was? That the UCI had a rule against it. Yeah. I, that still boggles my mind. Well, yeah, well, they, they uh, and I went to Switzerland I visited the UCI. I said, you need to change this rule. They said, well, you know, we're afraid guys will start bringing cross bikes out to the you know, World Cups. I said, look, your courses suck and you need to make real mountain bike courses. And they said, oh, OK. <laughs> well, <it's- laughs> and they didn't want to, you know, and, and it's like, look what's happened. Yeah, it's totally changed. And that was the thing. I said, look, you need to make courses where you can't have a cross bike on it and you cannot 
strangle the development of the mountain bike because this was like 2000, yep. 2001. And I was saying it's not developed yet. It's developing like crazy right now. It's changing like crazy, all of it. And you're going to strangle things by doing this. And look, my friend, I know a lot about the legalities of all this stuff. And you keep somebody from riding a bike that we know is safer, you're going to have some real issues, my friend. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So they put it to a vote to all the World Cup teams. And, you know, my team, the Fisher team, oh, yeah, we want 29ers. The Trek team, for instance, they said, no, we don't want to carry the extra equipment because they really envisioned having to carry 26-inch bikes and 29-inch bikes. Can you imagine? No, actually, I can't. But even though they didn't win the vote in that, the UCI decided to go with my recommendation. Yeah, that's that's amazing to me. I mean, it, it's so funny that, you know, realizing that, you know, a 29-inch wheel rides better ultimately resulted in better race courses. I, you know, it's, well, a, it's a funny yeah. development. I mean, that's, that's okay. I'll give you an example. Um, three years ago was the 25th anniversary of the first European World Championships over in France. Mm. Remember when they had a European World Championships and American World Championships? We actually <laughs> yes, did that mountain yep. bike for a couple of years. Anyway, I go over to France, and the main feature of this event is that we're going to ride the original course. And I'll tell you, this thing sucked. <laughs> and I used to be on the Norba board, and it used to be I'd be saying, look, can't we have these races on courses where it's actually faster to ride a bike than it is to, would be to just run without a bike? Because the courses were that bad. Yeah. And I'm riding this course, and I'm riding with Caroline Clausen, you know, world downhill oh, champion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And she's walking down this stuff just like I am because it's not, not made for mountain bike, you know? Right. And that was what – it was, you know, found object thing. And that's back to like the equipment and the hardware, what you're talking about. It was yep. all this found object stuff. And it was the same with the trails. There were some that were fabulous, but man, these guys out at the ski resorts, they got the money and they want to fill their condos. They're able to have a national or a world-class event. They fill all their condos and they don't have any pesky spectators. They loved it. You know, <laughs> it was crazy. And yeah. um, the courses were awful. And they so mud bugs. Well, yeah, mud bogs for one thing, or just stuff that's like barely rideable, so steep it's not rideable, sort of thing. Miserable courses, you know. Yep. And that's the best thing that's happening. And it happened. And is courses made for mountain bikes. And you look at that innovation, that innovation that really started, I think, most by mountain bike trail builders. And there were guys up in the Pacific Northwest. Uh, the guys in, um, I mean, the people that, and just the people in the, the Midwest, the Southeast that have gone out and built trails. I mean, that hasn't been what we've done in California, unfortunately. You know, we're finally coming around, but yeah, we yeah. did not. That was one trend that we did not start. No, we didn't start, but we sure do love it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, no okay. argument. Yeah. No. Can no we arguments. Go, can we go back just a second to talk a little bit more about trail? I don't want to run too far down this sure. rabbit hole. Yeah, 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 yeah. But I'm curious, you know, your designs. So you settled on um, 38.1 uh, millimeters of 
of rake uh, for the uh, for the fork, and you were doing seventy one head tube angles uh, on the bikes. Were you keeping trail consistent through all the mo- all the different sizes, uh, or were you varying uh, head tube angle a little? No, we. We varied head tape angle less. We we would do different offset uh, rigid forks, but we couldn't do it in in, uh, in shock forks. So we right. quit doing that. We oh. had to quit. It, it made no sense. Right, right. So it was yeah. important to you to keep uh, trail consistent through all the sizes. Well, yeah, you wanted to. You don't want the bike to handle completely differently. You know, for and that's became more of a thing though. You know, and that. You work with riders that are different size, and they got different, different things going on. You know, right? That's that. It's it's a funny thing. It's like with our twenty nine er and our small riders. I, man, I built some small bikes in my life, and mm-hmm. because we had some small racers, you know, and they they happen to be women, and um, you know, you, you get into it with them and what they're feeling and what they're doing and what they want to ride and everything, and there's different trade offs and everything. It's like you know. We do a thing, uh, you know, correct wheel size, and I don't necessarily agree with that. And, I, and there are different ways to make things work, but mm-hmm. uh, sometimes you go off, got to go out of standard. You know, you know, it's like I made a bike with a fifteen and a half inch chainstay for a twenty six inch wheel, and I love that bike. I'd ride that bike everywhere, but we couldn't do it in production because it was out of Shimano spec. You know, oh. it was such a short chainstay. You know, it was out of their spec. But along comes one by. All that stuff gets thrown out the window. It doesn't matter. You know? I love <laughs> yep. it. It's a, it's a wild world, and there's a lot of cool stuff happening. And it's like, we couldn't make all these curved tube bikes like we do today. We didn't have hydroforming for aluminum, you know, yeah. and uh, the type of way – and the way you can do that. And, a, and the good alloys that we have now and the good welding techniques. We didn't – and the carbon, what you can do with that, it's ridiculous, you know, yeah. what you can make these days. It's like we – our frames were steel and they were around four pounds. They needed to be about that weight, you know, and and they did certain things well and other things not that great, you know. And I don't know. I'm really happy to be going – forward and uh you know having good technology on the whole thing i mean we had good metallurgy and technology that way and that's Mm -hmm. still something that all the bike shops have got to learn about that and they've got to be a source of knowledge for all the citizens that come in there because people half the bicycles being sold today in the united states are of a metallurgy of such soft steel that you cannot torque the bolts to proper torque this is called landfill out of a box, an unrepairable bike. And some bike shops will take on those bikes and try to repair them for people. And they'll say, well, look, I can't charge more than what the bike costs. And the genuine truth is no matter what you charge for the, repairing that bike, you could not repair that bike to the point where you could make that bike, you know, worthwhile. It's like a joke. Yeah. You know? And that's that's like the biggest competition we have is uh, people, you know, thinking that, not taking the bike seriously and not taking metallurgy th- seriously. You look at the, you know, uh, you take off one of the nuts off of an axle of a cheap bike and you take it over an anvil, you take a, a hammer and man, you could flatten that sucker, just yeah. flatten it, you know, and you try that with our cheapest bike that we sell. No way. You know, our bikes are all, it's all, we have that standard that we expect, you know, and it's a repair or we, we say world's cheapest bike dollar per mile. So that's, that's, you know, basic metallurgy. 
I love it. And I learned a lot of that stuff and, uh, and that's steel, you know, and then yep. aluminum, you know, Gary Klein and Gary Klein brought about uh, zirconium in um, the alloy mix and brought a lot of ductility to the material. So they used to crack all the time. We used to call them crack and fail, you know, <laughs> yes. that particular brand. But they don't crack as much as they used to. They're really good. And now with the hydroforming and, and the new joining techniques, we got the, the weight of those things more like a carbon bike than like a steel bike. It's crazy Yeah, how light yeah. those things are. So it's a good time, you know. Now, now, and now we get the, um, um, the duty stuff, all, all the crazy uh, restrictions here in the States. That is not going to help us uh, because it's called disruption. Yep. Things like that, if it would happen slowly, would be better, I think. But I think everything is uh, enacted to uh, create a lot of shock. And boy, so we'll see how we handle that. But a lot of people are freaking out today about that one. That's that's certainly true. Uh, yeah. OK, so let's go back in history again. Uh, once you decided the one inch steer wasn't good enough for mountain bikes. Oh, yeah. Talk to right. me about, you know, we all know where you landed, okay? The Evolution headset, one and a quarter inches. I'm not so right. much concerned with the the ultimate decision you made. I'm curious about the process that led you to decide oh, the process. one really and a quarter simple. rather than one and an eighth or one and a half. Right. Yeah. Right, right. No, no. It was really simple. Really simple. I had noticed that the handlebars, mm-hmm. the stems... And the fork blades, because I was working on fork blades with Tange, you know. Yep. And they had all, like, doubled in relative stiffness, okay, especially laterally, you know, side to side and everything. Mm-hmm. In every way. I mean, we are trying to make a fork that felt good, you know, and everything. Um, and um, the one place that, you know, was still flexy and there was, you know, and the wall thickness was huge was a one-inch steer. And it was sort of silly to have that thing in the middle of the whole structure. It just didn't make any kind of sense. And mm-hmm. it was such an obvious solution to make the thing larger. And all you had to do was put an extra quarter inch on it, and you doubled it in stiffness. And that was the idea, to double it in stiffness. Oh, okay. Now, Gary Klein, Gary Klein came out with a superior idea to mine. And that was he just did it on the bottom and not the top. He had the taper. Yep. And that's all you needed to do. And that, that made it work really well, too. And that that was a whole crazy thing, you know, because um, it, it started, you know, we wanted to double it in steel, you know, the stiffness. And then everybody went to aluminum steers, right? Yeah. And that was crazy. And, and in one, one and an eighth. And the steers were right back where they were with the one inch as far as stiffness went. And it's a miracle to me that they didn't break. But they didn't break because we took the notch sensitivity out of it. I mean, the, the cleverest thing going on at the time was obviously the headset. That was a great design. Yeah. He came to me first. I had a chance to, like, take that whole thing. Diacompi took it instead. That was an error on my part. <laughs> oh. He came to me before Diacompi. <laughs> oh, wow. I had yeah. no idea. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> you look at these things and go, like, Wow, that would have been good. I mean, that would have been better than almost anything. <laughs> An awful lot of units of that but, headset sold, yeah. Yeah, well, he came to me because uh, I had a whole new headset thing going on, and I was getting royalties from all kinds of people, and the thing was happening. Yeah. And then um, uh, I 
I, my company, one of my guys, one of my product guys, totally insulted one of the big trading companies. We switched uh, trading companies in Japan. I, I had two of them I used. I used one for all the time. I used one for the Suntour side, and I used one for the Shimano side. Everybody did that, mm-hmm. and that was common. But I switched from one to the other, and a guy was pissed off. Um, and so he came out with a headset called Avenger. Oh, and that was an inch. I an remember inch. that. Oh, yeah. And they, and they beat me. They beat me in a very practical sense and that they charged less of a royalty. Uh, anybody paying their royalty wasn't paying their competitor, me. Mm-hmm. And uh, they provided all the tools better and all the peripheral things better than I did. So they beat me in the, in, uh, you know, the sales race. Because that's the funny thing, Patrick. I mean, I love that you want to – that people love the detail and how a bike rides. Mm-hmm. And our bikes were famous for how they rode. And people would say, yeah, that bike rides really well. Yep. But I'll tell you, um, it doesn't sell bikes. True you know? Not. You know, that's the sad part. Sad, sad part. And, you know, it's like I always – every bike I ever made, I always had a chromoly for it, fully chromoly. You know, mm-hmm. and you can save a lot of money by, you know, using a, oh, a high 10 fork, you know. Right. And um, a big heavy duty hunk of junk that feels like it. <laughs> and people don't know, yep. you know, and they're buying a bike because of the color, because of the price. Oh, it's got XT and look at the price. Oh, let's go. You know, and so that's all. That was always the tough lesson is that a really good product, it shows it as well as does it yeah. you know it's it's got to have go for sure but it, it damn well needs show to sell <laughs> oh i hate yeah. to say it, you know? oh so you know, true so that's and the inch and a quarter had a lot of sell that way because the proportions looked right yep that's it that was the thing that blew my mind is we first showed that bike at the interbike show when it was in uh, reno and the guys helping set up in the booths, you know, the union guys were saying, your bikes look the best. They look beefy and cool. Interesting. Yeah. And the whole thing really flew. It really went well. Wow. You know. So, so we went from one inch to. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. You know. But anyway, I mean, I like bikes the way they look now. I mean, it's like all the crazy plus size bikes and everything. I like how they look and how they feel at ride. The suspensions are finally like everything's really working. Yeah. It's yeah. like we did early, early stuff with Mert Lau and that was a, you know, a four bar pers- uh, suspension, you know, with the, um, um, what do you call it? Uh, oh, it did a lot, you know. Mm-hmm. It wasn't just a silent piece, you know. It like, uh, uh, it did a lot and it used, um, you know, big oversized bearings on it. It used a disc brake that didn't work. <laughs> <laughs> it used a big oversized rear axle. It was a 14-millimeter rear axle. Yep. And, uh, you know, the bottom bracket shell was 110 millimeters wide. It was super wide. And we just did everything we had to do to try and make that bike right. And I was just, like, bound and determined, this thing's going to work. i got to make this thing work. And we made 750 of them. We sold them all. And it got more than anything, it got people to think mm-hmm. about the whole thing and realize what it could do and all that, you know. Um, and uh, that was, um, man, we lost a lot of money on that one. But I'd do it a 
again in a heartbeat because it's part of the process you know you got to go out there and wing it and make mistakes it's like trek did the same thing they did a dual suspension bike in their first year and that bike was almost unrideable mm. do you remember that bike with a really super high pivot point oh that sounds familiar yeah 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 and it was it was such that pivot point was so high that when you'd ride it up a hill the thing would be bucking you know i mean literally bucking it was amazing <laughs> you know uh, but they winged it you know they said hey let's try one and you know it took a while but um it, it, a lot of that stuff takes 10 years it's amazing yeah until well, it's, it works really well you know i remember riding your first four bar linkage bike back in i guess it was 1998 um and it was one of those things where the bike didn't pedal very well. Um, I remember riding a section of road to get to the trail and just being flat out dropped by guys I can't, I have no problem riding with. But the moment no, I was well, going downhill, said, I was tearing it up. So I'm right. curious about, you know, how did you go about evaluating? What were the criteria you were looking for in those designs? I just wanted a breakthrough. I mean, you know, <laughs> that was it. I mean, I wanted to fly downhills, you know. Nothing short of the Holy Grail. No, yeah, you know, and it took a while. I mean, we're still getting there. I still see designs. There's still new stuff coming out that's amazing. You know, right. On both sides. And we got our side that we both mostly put it inside the can, you know, make the shock incredible. And then there's the other side of I me, mean, like, like Darl Voss's new bike and all that. That's mm -hmm. crazy. I yes. love it. You know. And it's like, we're not done. We're still going to have more to do, you know, to, to like take this thing and, and put it in the next place. But we're in some truly amazing places that, man. Uh, well, you know, here was the thing. We talk about racing. And racing back then was cross country. Downhill was sort of a freak show on the side. Cross <laughs> yes. country was the big money, the whole thing. And um, Winning was you know, a matter I'd, of I'd not crashing. Yeah. And I'd explain to people, well, these guys all like hardtails because – they use the intelligent springs. That's their legs. And it's true. I mean, you know, you get somebody that's really good at handling a bike. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I mean, John Tomac, you know, all these guys, they can they can handle a hardtail and make it work for them. Problem is, their average human being in a half an hour, their intelligent springs are totally tired. <laughs> yep. Not ready to go, you know. And so they want to sit in the seat and go for a ride and have a good time. But then we get into a whole back to a whole like, what's the original idea of this in the first place? And, you know, it's just not like sort of a heavy duty road bike. No, it's mm -hmm. like something really special that's really made to go over incredible terrain and do incredible stuff. And that's what we got going on now. I mean, I watch the guys do the, the World Cup downhill, I, you know, the. Yeah, flying off the mountain in Utah. Oh my God! You know, <laughs> yes. And you know, it just jumps and things. And a little kid starting to pin it and get it down and work on it and make it right. You know, and it's like um, a whole nother place. And I love being able to still be involved in making the equipment for that and make it work really well. You know, super yeah. well and. We've got a lot of good people with really open minds right now. You know, sometimes things get into this place of, um, oh, I'm paranoid. I don't want to be running what everybody else isn't running, you know, mm -hmm. and that's it. 
not only the race thing, but also in sales and all that. Right. And it's calcification of thought. Oh, uh, yeah. No, it's really open right mm-hmm. now. To, yeah. Uh, instead of like all this, you know, just little tiny refinement, there's some lot of wild, crazy things going yeah. on, you know, to, to make fun bikes and a fun experience. And part of that's too, I mean, the whole e-mountain bike thing too. That's crazy, you know, yep. and just e-bikes in general and the types of units that you could make, you know, that uh, do all kinds of crazy things. Um, it's pretty um, – it's getting to be more and more limitless, you know. Yeah. And that's a lot of fun, you know, and like the, the vehicles are going to be taken out there and doing stuff with. The, high, the technologies, you know, are – it's big, you know. And, and at the same time, though – we still have, you know, a lot of uh, appreciation for the original things because a lot of the original things, these geometry issues you're talking about, are just that act of riding a bike. And whilst there are all these new ways of riding a bike, we are also getting more and more knowledgeable about why we prefer certain things and why we've we've um, why we do things, why we've done things in a traditional way. Also, you know, how come? Right. What right. makes you want to do it. And that's uh, like in our company, you know, we got a lot of product people, a lot of engineers. And one of the big issues all the time is retention of the knowledge. You know, that guy I knew all about this, man, he's leaving next year. And we don't know if there's anybody here who has any kind of idea what he knew. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. just, you know, you got to have that going on. And with bikes, it, you can see that obviously, you know, people, things that were common knowledge, you know, 10 years ago are not so much now. Right. And some of that stuff, forget about it. Didn't matter anyway. Other parts, well, you should remember about this because this is going to come into play even on the next one. <laughs> you know? Yep. yep. And the way you break rules well is you know all the rules and you know what <laughs> you're doing when you break them. You know? Yep. And you know damn well what you're doing when you break them. You know, that's... That's where I I came from on the thing. I mean, my first Japanese mountain bike was made by Panasonic. They had a beautiful factory, and I had to just fight them tooth and nail to have a sloping top tip. They said bikes aren't made that way, you know. And I was, you know, I was at the time too. I'd been the road tester for the biggest bike magazine in the United States, and I had all this clout. I said, look, this is the way it's going to be. And this is the way it should be, and this is the way it is. And I said, oh, okay. <laughs> and sometimes you just got to stand up for it and say, hey, I've been doing this a long time, and I'm going to tell you right now, this is going to work. Trust yeah. me. You know? and, and so so I'm not afraid of that. You know, my family's been that way too a bit, you know, to the degree that like, boy, it's too much, you know, sometimes. But I, I like to – I've gotten more into like, you know, I like to watch people what they do and, and, you know, and and encourage them, you know, it's a great thing. We got a lot of great people in this industry right now and to keep going and, uh, you know, um, and provide good bikes and provide good service and from little tiny guys to the real big ones, it's always the same thing. You finally get down, it's like one person on a bike, you know, right? and it's their experience riding a bike. Yeah. And there's a lot, a lot of choices, you know, what you can do. And so. Well, when you're imaginative, yeah, it's pretty limitless. So yeah. much of what you've been talking about has been concerning innovation. Um, 
And there are two big hurdles that you bump up against anytime you're going to do something new and different. You know, one is the money for the tooling and all the product. Uh, but the other is, you know, one that's psychological, getting other people to buy in. I'm oh, curious yeah. which of those is the bigger hurdle in your oh, perspective. The, oh, we only move at the speed that the, you know, the brain can absorb the idea. You know, come on. I mean, there'll be ideas and things that are like four and five years ahead of their time. And it takes that long, you know, and you can accelerate that process by crises where everybody pays attention or by just, you know, heavy propaganda and things, you know. Yep. And it'll do that. I mean, traditional marketing does that. I mean, come in with this like, man, we're going to hit them from all sides, all this stuff and everything. So some things can change really fast when there's a lot of attention to it. And a lot of things, man, it just takes time. And in it, and you got to realize where you're at and uh, is this changing? It's like – it's really funny. I mean like the 29er. The 29er had real problems. I mean compared to like 650B and, and all and uh, you know the 27 and a half. 27 and a half came in and everybody said, oh, OK. Let's try it out. Let's go. Let's do yep. it. Boom. In two years' time, it was there. 29er took 10 years. 10 years, man. 10 years. And 29er finally won. Absolutely. I mean, it had real problems. And the people were saying, what the hell is this? This thing's, you know, what do we need this for? And a lot of people were saying that in the magazines. And, and the magazines, one of my good friends, Wes Williams, he was one of the early 29er guys, you know, definite pioneer, you know, loved the bikes, lover of bikes. But man, I remember one day, one of the guys at Shimano Marketing calls me up and says, you know, Chris DiStofano. And he says, man, you got to do something about him because he's just bugging all the magazine editors calling them stupid and everything wow so here's a clear case it's politics man that's one thing okay whatever you know they're saying we don't need this we don't want that but then it, it finally won and it kept winning in this really definitive way and you got in your ride with your friends and you got a new bike and you and, and you're you know where your pecking order is you know who's yep. the fastest who's the slowest Who's the most skilled? Who's the most risk-taking? You know, who's the most, you know, doofiest? Who never takes a risk? And like you get, you know, you know where the pecking order is. And anytime you move up on the pecking order, you can get a new bike. Everybody points at the bike and says, oh, he got a new bike. It's the bike. Anytime you get a bike that like makes you go back a few places, then you say, it's the bike. The bike's no good. That's the ultimate proving grounds. Because yep. you go out and you ride at these guys all the time. You know where you stand, right? <laughs> and the 29er won that one. Yeah. People would say, I've never cleaned this before. Hey, he never, hey, he never cleaned that before. It must be the bike. It's not him. <laughs> you know, and that's the place. It's really funny. All these guys can say all they want. And, well, that's got a big effect too. And the funniest thing that I've noticed is that guys – like in California, pay more attention to what the magazine guys uh, say and ride what they, the magazine guys say than anywhere else I've ever seen. <laughs> yeah. So they were last to get onto the 29er. They're last to get onto the plus size thing. You know, they'll never do fat bikes. No way. <laughs> <laughs> and you go other places. You go to the Midwest. You go to the Southeast. You go to all these places and like you see all these crazy bikes. And people said, swearing by him, I said, I, got, I just had too much fun. Yeah. But 
my attitude is like, hey, if you're having fun, we win. We all win. You know, this really works well. And that's the fun factor is huge in the whole thing. Yeah. That's what we're doing. And that's, and you know, it's got to be fun and it's got to be something, a reliable bike. And it's not stupid to get a hold of it or fix it or, you know, or anything like that. I just, I want to make things simple, you know, and it's, and it, it's still, it's always going to be about, you know, what's up the road uh, or up the trail, what's left in your heart and left in your legs. And it's the people you ride with and the places you go. I mean, that's what makes the experience. And we just make the hardware and I want to make the hardware just totally like make you feel good in that experience. You know? Oh, amen. Amen. You know, that's okay. the thing I've always Church loved about you. Church of the bike. <laughs> yes. Yes. You always boil it back down to the experience. And that's one of the reasons why it's always been so easy to believe in what it is you're doing. Yeah. Well, and, and it is back to like the basics of like, if you do those things, the money will fall right in line. And don't be stupid when it comes to money. That's all. <laughs> you know, you don't have to be vindictive either. Because sometimes it's stupid to ask too much, you know? Mm. You kill somebody and then you don't have them anymore. Just no good either. So true that. Yeah, man. Well, thank you. This has been just a, a most delightful conversation. I really appreciate oh, thank it. You. Likewise. Yeah. Good. Oh, someday we're gonna get get out there for a ride ourselves. There you go. Okay. I rode today. Yeah. Can do it. <laughs> All right. I'll squeeze mine in this afternoon. Thank you, Gary. Thank you. Thanks to my guest, Gary Fisher, for joining me on The Pool. You know, he's out and about quite a lot. If you bump into him, he's likely to tell you what he thinks of bikes. And there's nothing like going out and riding all the time. To learn more about his work, you can visit his induction page at the Mountain Bike Hall of Fame. There will be a link in our show notes at Red Kite Prayer. That's it for this episode of The Pool. I hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, I hope you'll leave the show a good review on iTunes or wherever you get your media. Finally, if you're not already listening to RKP's other podcast, The Paceline, co-hosted by Celine Yeager, a.k.a. The Fit Chick from Bicycling Magazine, I encourage you to give us a listen. Until next week, have a great ride.